0: Our first movie tells the story of a friendship behind prison walls that spans more than 20 years.
1: Welcome to episode three of Middle Brow Madness: An Exercise in Podcasting Hubris. I think I'm going to stick with that one. Um, uh, my name is Derek Gare.
0: I'm Michelle Arf.
1: So, what the hell is Middle Brow Madness, you may ask? Well, let me tell you. Um,
0: we basically Be- besides say, a terrible idea that I had. I don't think it's a terrible idea, but
1: I do think it's a uh, it's it's we're definitely in it for the long haul if we see this one through to the end because uh, just. Like just from pure mathematics, it's it, it's a it, it's 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 a wildly ambitious thing that we're doing. Uh, what we've done is we've taken the IMDb top 250 films of all time plus uh, six uh, wildcards to round out the bracket. Uh, these 256 movies, through the uh, tried and true bulletproof method of the single elimination bracket, we will find the champion, the best film of the lit.
0: And I guess
1: using the metrics of the IMDb list, the greatest movie of all time. Asterisk.
0: Very large asterisk. One of the biggest ones I can remember having in any podcast ever that I've done.
1: I mean, uh, for, for your old show, I mean, I don't know if we should talk about our other podcasts on this podcast, but on your old show, you at least had, like, um, you had a say into, like, what was like what was canon-worthy. I mean, that was the whole gimmick.
0: Whereas this, this is this was, like, given to us by the uh, the masses over at IMDb.
1: Yeah, we we went out to imdb.com and received the the stone tablets of the podcast from the users. And, uh, well, here we are. And uh, now we're going to talk about these fucking
0: movies. Some fun behind-the-scenes facts for anyone listening to episodes three and four is that I'm currently eating dinner uh, because we're starting this a little later than I expected to. Um, so if you hear me, I'm going to try to edit it out, but if you hear me eating pizza or drinking uh, lambic beer, then, or if you see me getting progressively more uh, belligerent during episode two of this, then you'll know why.
1: Yes. If, if, if Michelle starts yelling at me in maybe not a friendly way, when episode four comes out, you'll know why.
0: I'll just be pulling my, uh, my Woody Allen, but we'll, we'll oh. get to that.
1: Yeah, we'll get to that—not this episode, but next episode. But uh, there's no shortage of bad dudes in this episode, and oh boy, <laughs> we 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 ran the
0: bad dude gauntlet this week. Yeah, we. Some of these matchups are fascinating in the fact that most of what we're going to talk about is just the creators of the films themselves, and not the actual films.
1: Uh, yeah, well, you know, invariably, uh, creator and creation inform them uh, inform each other. But uh,
0: but this is going to be the episode, and the, the two episodes, rather, that really test our ability to discuss whether we're going to separate Artists from Artists or not. Sorry, Art from Artists.
1: So uh, this is our slate for this episode. We have um, Braveheart versus Into the Wild and Cinema Paradiso versus Million Dollar Big. Now, the rules that we've set up for ourselves is that we're uh, we're giving ourselves 20 minutes to discuss each matchup. And uh, we've got to land on uh, on a consensus between the two of us. And if we can't, well, we'll have to use one of our vetoes. We have four of them for this whole first round. We all have. We both have all four. And uh, I'm looking over the stats, and I don't think I don't think we're going to be using any of this episode, Michelle.
0: No, I don't think so either. I don't. I'm interested to see when we eventually do use them because I feel like on a lot of these we're pretty. Either in lockstep or we don't care enough to actually have the like drawn-out fight about it.
1: Yeah, I think we're pretty simpatico on a lot of these. I think it's going to be... Like, there's some ridiculous matchups further up in the bracket that we hinted at on uh, previous episodes.
0: Yes, certainly. There's uh, there's some difficult questions that we have to answer later.
1: Mm, but these these questions, I think, are pretty easy. So I think we should get right, get, uh, get right to it.
0: Yeah, for sure. Let's go. Braveheart versus Into the Wild. Where do we want to start?
1: Well, I got I got some stats here which I think might be interesting. Just uh just a little a little tail of the tape for these two for these two features. Um Braveheart, uh by uh, directed by Mel Gibson, released in 1995. Uh 5 wins from 10 nominations at the Academy Awards in 1996 and uh made $210 at the uh, 210 million at the box office. It was not a notorious flop making only three figures, but it was in fact a massive hit. And uh, we also have, and oh, yeah, I wrote down the seed numbers, which I thought would be interesting. This is ranked 75 on the list, which is pretty high.
0: Much higher than I would have expected.
1: So this is the favorite going into this uh, competition. The underdog, as it were, were uh, is uh, Into the Wild, which is seated at number 182, directed by Sean Penn, released in 2007, based on the book of the same name by John Krakauer, two Oscar nominations, no wins. And uh, a modest hit, fifty-six mil on a twenty million dollar budget. Now, but a,
0: a pretty big critical hit with certain corners. Like um, when I was doing research for the podcast, I found that actually a lot of people who used to write for the Dissolve really loved this movie and ended up placing very high on their list. I know, like Genevieve Kosky loves it, stuff like that. So,
1: yeah, if I remember correctly, Tasha Robinson's a fan of this movie as well. Correct. And uh, so, yeah, this is this is two movies made by reprehensible
0: human beings. Very true. <laughs>
1: As opposed uh, to just
0: as opposed to just one like we usually have,
1: yeah, uh, and they're and they're both ah uh, uh, man, they're both these like weird, not weird, but there's like these individualistic sort of you know dream your dream man. Except one of them uh, operates in a register that I like more than the other.
0: I think that's fair to say. I think do we want to start with Braveheart or do we want to start with Into the Wild?
1: Let's start with Braveheart. Um, this was my first do-si-do with Braveheart, which, if I recall, surprised also, you.
0: Your first Doce Do with Mel Gibson as a director, am I not wrong?
1: That's true. I haven't seen Apocalypto or Passion of the Christ. Uh, this was my first. Uh, this is my first meeting with Mad Mel in the director's chair, and
0: um, I, I kind of liked this, Michelle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I,
1: I thought it was kind of rad.
0: <laughs> I had a feeling it would kind of like. Uh, that's why I was surprised you said you hadn't seen it because it seemed like a very, a very good Derek movie in that it operates on this mythic register, this mythic kind of, not quite a tone poem, like like a tone rock song. That's just, it is bludgeoning consistently, and not in a necessarily a negative way, but it is the least subtle thing I think we've watched so far.
1: Uh, yeah, I think you're correct. Uh, except, with the possible exception of Cool Hand Luke, but this is a lot more heavy-handed than Cool Hand Luke. Real quick plot description, uh, Mel Gibson plays William Bla. uh, William Wallace, a Scottish nationalist, warrior poet. And basically, basically...
0: We, we, we should say not historical figure because he is so different from the historical William Wallace. There's almost no point in comparing the two.
1: Sure, because this William Wallace basically just slaughters his way to Scottish independence.
0: <laughs> his,
1: this movie is really fucking violent. And almost in like a Monty Python way at times where it's like super excessive and theatrical.
0: Like, when people get their hands cut off in this movie, it looks like the Black Knight that guards the bridge in Holy Grail.
1: That's exactly what I thought. Like, the first sort of holy shit they put this in a movie moment for me was when someone cuts off a dude's leg as he's moving and he just falls backwards. <laughs> like, this is a fucking tech Avery cartoon. And it's like, oh shit, it's got to be like this, isn't it? And then it gets real violent and real tortury.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's... One of the things I find fascinating about Gibson's work, I mean, we should say up front that Gibson is a, a terrible human being. Real who piece is, of shit. Like, we have, it's not only like alleged things, like perhaps with Sean Penn, has a lot of alleged problems. No, like, we have documented proof that Mel Gibson is abusive, is anti Semitic, is sexist, is super homophobic, and just seems to be all around a piece of shit. And the fact that he's still allowed to make movies in Hollywood is not great. Um, no. All the- But I do agree that Braveheart and all of his other films have this strange, tonal, I wouldn't say problem, but irregularity in that they're both ridiculously goofy and incredibly violent while trying to maintain a sense of seriousness and a sense of purpose that seem at odds with what it's also doing at the same time like you haven't seen Apocalypto or Passion of the Christ but Passion of the Christ as many people have said is a torture porn movie with Jesus yeah. which at its face is ridiculous although I must say I like that movie quite a bit uh and then there's Apocalypto which is a movie I like even more and that's a movie that has a bunch of jokes about like people eating like balls and then a guy gets chili peppers put in like his underwear it's really strange and then all of a sudden it becomes this it becomes rambo for a little bit it's a very odd mix of things he tries to do
1: and isn't the whole thing like like in a dead language like passion is yes yes oh man which i kind of
0: would have liked to see him attempt to do braveheart in that way like use old scottish to try to like like, make it work
1: or something yeah oh man uh yeah this this like like, Gibson, like, Mad Mel won a fucking Oscar for directing this thing. And this, I think, is a key kind of comparison point uh, between uh, Braveheart and Into the Wild. Whereas, I can kind of see why the Academy would reward this, because this is very, like, bombastic. It, it's, it, it, it I mean, there is a sense of direction in this film. You can't, there, there's vision here. There's like, I want to make this goddamn movie, and it's going to look like this. It's going to be mythic and giant and awesome. Like, in, in the literal sense of awesome with those just power shots of the Highlands.
0: Certainly. Or even, like, when he jumps his horse out of an open window and falls into a lake. Yeah. it's. Or- it, I have seen this movie quite a few times, I should say. I watched it a bit as a kid. I have the two- I had the two VHS version that mm-hmm. took took a, a lot of tape to get that movie through. This is right long. On. It's almost three hours, I think.
1: Yeah. Right? All of these movies, except for uh, Annie Hall and this- in this bunch were like between two and three hours.
0: Yes. Um, like, some of them over three hours. If you watch the extended edition, but
1: which I did not do because uh, I have a day job.
0: I do too, but I also don't have like anything else to do with my time. So, mm. <laughs> but yeah, the, I also, I do want to say one thing I really don't like about Braveheart, which sure. is the like virulent homophobia in the, uh, the King's son character, the Prince character.
1: Yeah. Like if, if, Like that guy might as well being that that guy might as well be wearing a sandwich board that says this character is coded as gay. Get it?
0: He might as well be the Monty Python character from Holy Grail of the kid who's like singing in the tower. It's the same character, more or less.
1: Oh, the dude who goes, what the the curtains?
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, Yeah, it's this is a very Python-esque film. Try to imagine like try to imagine Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but played straight and with like a
0: 10 times bigger budget. And that's really into the idea of violent nationalism
1: and uh, sort of uh, and, and cleansing violence. Yes, it's a, it's a very violent movie. There's this. This is like, oh man, I could talk about Braveheart for like hours, but I can't because of the rules that we've set for ourselves.
0: Yeah, we're actually we only have about a minute left. Is there anything you want to get in before we have to move on to uh, Sean Penn's Into the Wild?
1: I fucking hate that I like this movie this much.
0: <laughs> yeah, it almost feels like a. Like an issue, like you're basically celebrating, you know, open nationalism. You're celebrating open homophobia. You're celebrating Mel Gibson, who is not a great person to celebrate uh, in any no. way. But at the same yeah. time, it's it's a really entertaining and enjoyable movie to watch.
1: Like, like, like this is like of the of the four movies this episode that we're covering. This is the one I'm likeliest to watch again.
0: Okay, fair enough. So um, shall we
1: shall we tackle shall we tackle the boil on cinema's ass that is Sean Penn? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I don't I hate this man so much. I don't even know where to start. Not what? only not only the fact that he's like allegedly abusive and allegedly like a lot of terrible other terrible things, mm-hmm. but also the fact that he paints himself as like the bleeding heart liberal of Hollywood. Sure. And then he just and then he makes super racist jokes about um uh inuritu, right? When he was receiving an award.
1: Uh oh no. <laughs> oh shit.
0: Did he make? Did he make some joke about Mexicans or whatever? He made a green card joke. Oh, yeah! And he was like, "Oh, he's my buddy. It's fine. I can say that. I'm Sean Penn. I have Mexican friends. I can make those jokes." And then he, um, he wrote a book, which is one of the worst things I've ever read.
1: Yeah, that book apparently is quite bad.
0: It's awful. Um, and he made that movie recently with Javier Bardem and uh, Charlize Theron, right? Uh, where they play like two people who fall in love in the middle of like an african um war crisis like while they're while they're doctors trying to help like child soldiers not die
1: it's, uh that sounds like something i would not greenlight.
0: <laughs> yeah um it got can i remember and it never actually got an official release because the studio who was going to release it or the production company was like uh i think i think we're good on that one
1: uh the last face
0: that sounds about the right title
1: yeah yeah and also god uh, also starring uh, uh, Jean renaud Nadelle. Uh, I'm never going to say her name correctly. Uh, from uh, "Blue is the Warmest Color,"
0: um, Exarchopoulos. Okay, sounds sounds as right as I would say it, or probably <laughs> more correct. So
1: I don't speak Greek.
0: Um, and I, I have seen, I have read the book "Into the Wilds" based on. Honestly, mm-hmm. this is the movie I was kind of dreading the most because knowing Sean Penn and knowing what he's like, I pretty much knew he was going to. Valorize Christopher McCandless going in, and he was going to make him into this Jack Kerouacian figure. I was exactly going to say Jack Kerouac ass. Very much. Like, there's no way that Sean Penn doesn't adore On the Road, and this is his way to make On the Road without having the rights to that film. And the thing I found fascinating, and maybe like you'll disagree or agree on this, I'm interested to hear your opinion. Every time a character opened their mouth, I kind of hated it because they don't have anything interesting to say. And I think the things that are glamorized and the things that are promoted in this film are bad. Uh, and I think that Christopher McCandless was an idiot and not someone to actually glamorize at all. I think he he was a 23-year-old. I probably would have said some dumb shit as a 23-year-old, too. Uh, and I don't want anyone making movies about what I said when I was 23. I was but, talking... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no. I was going to say, you continue.
1: Uh, I think the word that was bandied about when I was talking uh, about this movie with, with Steph, my girlfriend, is anti Civ. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I mean... Yeah, this like there's no way to slice this movie or this story and not conclude that uh Chris McCandless was at the very least just misguided. Maybe shouldn't have put his money, money where his mouth was.
0: Yeah, I mean there I will say that there is something to a degree noble about the fact that he really believed this and he changed his entire life to make it happen, but the fact that you did something like that doesn't inherently make you f- exempt from criticism. And or- I I see basically no criticism of McCandless in this film.
1: No, he's, he's created, he's treated like, it's a hagiography. It's, he's created like a, 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 he's treated like a countercultural hero. This whole fucking movie feels like it could just be appended with a comma and the word
0: man at the end of it. (laughs) Yes, yes. You're, you're not wrong. And a lot,
1: a lot of that is just Sean Penn. It just, it, like you were saying, it smacks of Sean Penn.
0: Sean Penn is not a good director. (laughs) No, he's not. And this is this is the thing that I kind of found almost frustrating and fascinating about this film, is that when people shut up, I actually kind of like it, and I respect it in a weird way, and it evokes a certain feeling that a lot of other movies for me haven't evoked. I am someone who I like hiking quite a bit. I like going into the woods. Um, I sure. like backpacking. I like those kinds of things. And there's a loneliness when doing those things by yourself that's very enjoyable. And being alone in a place where there's no other people and there's just wilderness all around you is satisfying and sad and melancholy and awesome and there's moments in this film that that get that feeling across but then they have to ruin it by all of a sudden like people talking again or he does it with super weird like pointless on-screen text or he has that one scene where christopher mccandless like is eating an apple and he's making jokes about the apple literally looking into the camera
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this... or there's
0: there's the the bit with Christian Stewart which is weird and like doesn't seem to lead anywhere and it was before she became a really good actress so it's not like acted particularly well either between her or is it Emile Hirsch who's It's
1: Emile Hirsch. Yeah. who to be fair didn't get the meatiest role because like every other character in this film exists to basically portray McCandless as like this as this martyr there's a lot of martyrdom in these movies that we're covering, Michelle.
0: Yeah. Well, like, McCandless never does anything wrong. So all that Emile Hirsch can do is be this person that Sean Penn wants to idolize.
1: I'll say this about Case 2, though. Uh, her singing Angel from Montgomery is one of my favorite scenes in the film.
0: Oh, no, I definitely I definitely agree. Great song. Just, and just because I like that song. Her performance is a pretty good performance, I will say.
1: And basically everything involving Hal Holbrook, I'm down for.
0: Yes, I agree. I think those scenes are some of the more satisfying, even though they have, the rhythms are kind of weird, but they have the best jokes, they have the best camaraderie in them scenes as well.
1: I think I think Holbrook is the person that uh, Hirsch has the most chemistry with in the film, like, bar none.
0: Yeah, I mean, he. they try to do something with um, uh, Vince Vaughn is pretty good in this. I didn't mind uh, him. No, I, yeah, I think he's he's fine in it, but the thing they're trying to do with it doesn't really seem to pan out and you don't understand what the background or context of the things are. He's just a guy who is doing something illegal, but we don't I don't really didn't ever say what it is, right? Why he got arrested?
1: I think it was for uh illegal cable hookups. That's what I understood.
0: Okay, that kind of makes sense. Um and then he's also into UFOs and he also happens to like own some company that employs people who work on farms or like the grain mill, right? Something like that. Yeah. Which isn't really a a character. (laughs) Sorry, it's not really a character. It's a collection of ticks. Yes. Which um, I do want to say it's not much. It's very different in the book in that the book is more of a chronicle of like looking at trying to track down things. It's more investigative reporting and lifestyle like writing uh i don't think the book's great either but i think it more effectively conveys why mccandless actually wants to leave home i think it more conveys why he likes being alone in the wilderness and it more effectively conveys the fact that he was kind of an idiot in what he was trying to do
1: uh you didn't like the eddie vetter music from what i No, understand.
0: it sucks <laughs> <laughs> although to be fair uh i did say in the chat that i just hate pearl jam in general they're the worst grunge band uh I think I said that I would prefer listening to Stone Temple Pilots over listening to Pearl Jam, which I think will get me kicked out of most places in Seattle. But Pearl Jam fucking sucks, and Eddie Vedder's songs in here aren't any better.
1: I will disagree with you on the Pearl Jam thing, because I like Pearl Jam. Because I think I think I signed a contract that I've got to like... I mean, Pearl Jam are the dad rock of
0: the grunge bands.
1: Oh, certainly. That's them. So I'm kind of bound by law to actually... I'm bound by dad law to like Pearl Jam. Kind but of like
0: I, 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 <laughs> I was gonna say, kind of like Alice in Chains can also be a dad band. It's more of like a stoner dad band. Sure,
1: uh, but I wasn't wild about the songs. Like I think, I think, I think Eddie Vedder was trying to do like a was trying to do what Neil Young did for Dead Man, but with words.
0: Yeah, and the Dead Man soundtrack is good because there's no words. That's part of the part of the enjoyment of it. Yeah, but I mean, <sighs> not just not to say that Neil Young's bad at words. Obviously, I I like Neil Young, but
1: yeah. But the reason that the Dead Man soundtrack worked was because it was like instrumental and weird and fit the move.
0: True. And I mean, and this, to be fair, I think this soundtrack fits the movie Sean Penn wanted to make, which is a story about this backpacker hipster story about how great it is to hate civilization, but nothing specifically. He didn't have any specific politics. He was just like, oh, consumerism, man. And your parents, your parents sir suck. Parents are a drag, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're running out of time on this one. Do we want to say anything else about Into the Wild? Other than it sucks? Oh, see, I don't think it sucks.
1: I don't like it very much, Michelle. I I think of the four movies... Yeah, actually, I'm going to go ahead and say that of the four movies that we watched, I actively disliked this one.
0: Interesting. I definitely disagree with that. I think it's... I'm actually kind of at a toss-up between this and Braveheart, just because I think those moments that I said that work in Into the Wild do work very well. It's just that it doesn't have the, it, it can't sustain those, and, it, and I think the movie it was trying to be is a terrible film. Yeah, uh,
1: I don't like the way it's put together. There's so like Sean Penn makes so many weird bad decisions from a creative standpoint, and like the unity of vision that that human shit stain Mel Gibson brings to the brings to Braveheart is like uh, no, nah, I'm gonna have to put my chips on Braveheart.
0: Okay, that's 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 that is fair. I I think I'm totally fine going ahead with Braveheart because I think it's a far more consistent film. I think it's um, a film with a better idea of what it wants to be and a better way of executing on that.
1: Uh, I would agree.
0: Cool. So Braveheart it is then. Braveheart next round will go up against... Oh, I guess we decide that next.
1: Yeah. Whoever wins between uh, the next two films that we're going to be doing, uh, Cinema Paradiso, our first foreign film, our first like... That's our first foreign film, right?
0: I mean, if you don't count, like, the UK as foreign.
1: Okay, so our second foreign. uh, Directed by Giuseppe uh, Tornatore, released in 1988. Uh, Winner uh, winner at the Academy Awards, uh, the prize for Best Foreign Language Film in 1990. Um, And it's going up against the 203-seed Million Dollar Baby, directed by everyone's favorite crotchety grandfather Republican filmmaker, uh, Clint Eastwood. Released in 2004. Uh, Four Oscar wins out of seven nominations. Uh, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, and Best Supporting Actor. Uh, Based on the stories of FX Tool and made- Which,
0: I just want to say that's a name I love. I love that someone made their pen name FX Tool.
1: I think it's FX Tool. I can't read my own goddamn handwriting.
0: No, no, you're right. That is it.
1: Okay, cool. And uh, made a a pretty penny at the box office. $220 million. So
0: you didn't like cinema parody, so at all, didn't you? No, I thought it's fucking terrible. (laughs) I think it's like, (laughs) of the films we've watched so far, I think it's by far the worst. I hated all, and I should say I watched the extended cut, which is three hours long. So I had to sit with this movie for three hours. I legitimately thought of like messaging you and being like, hey, can I tap out and just say I didn't like it? Because I don't want to sit in this movie anymore. I didn't. I watched the whole thing. And I'm kind of glad I did because I think the last hour of the extended edition... Where we see a grown-up version of the uh, Salvatore is his name.
1: Yes, uh, or or Toto, as he is known for a portion yes.
0: of the film. Um, the grown-up version of Salvatore, I think, is much more interesting and has more things to say. But at the same time, I think I described it on Letterboxed as an episode, uh, as the episode of Twilight Zone, Walking Distance, but shitty the whole time, and it's three <laughs> hours long. Uh, no, I think that this film doesn't portray childhood in a way that I personally saw interesting. I think that in general, films that are coming-of-age films are not good i i think that it's the genre or like theme that i identify with the least and i had the least sympathy for i actually was looking through my i was looking through the films in my letterbox to see if there's any coming-of-age films quote-unquote that i actually like and i was coming up with stuff like come and see which is more of a war film about how terrible war is yeah um, and films like that nature, I think that this kind of film is just so much of what I don't like in movies. It's so precious, it's so saccharine and like sugary sweet, and then it becomes just a fucking drag the entire way through. Did you, I, I'm interested to hear? Did you like any part of this film? I thought it was Deese. That's that's about like it's. I I mean I know no, I know. Uh, what, I also did want to say that uh, the. There's a montage at the end of kissing scenes. It's supposed to be like super famous. Everyone's like, oh, it's a wonderful, like one of the best endings in film. And the problem is they they don't stick on the on the scene. They like don't show the whole thing. They keep cutting back to the character's face to see how he's reacting to the scene when what we should be doing is sticking on the montage, watching it for like five minutes and actually getting what we're supposed to get out of it. It's, it's so poorly directed. It's so poorly edited that it ruins the integrity and the interest of that scene itself.
1: Yeah, I the, I mean this is like a typical 3-star movie for. me. It was fine. I thought it was okay. I have I, str- I that's the thing I kind of struggled to have an opinion on it, which I think is more damning than
0: I mean it to be. Um yeah, cuz there's even the things that are like kind of good about the movie are really bland and not they've they've been done better somewhere else. Yeah. And actually interesting to that is speaking of come and see, there's two scenes in this film that are kind of like the the optimistic humanist version of two scenes that are in Come and See. Um, I won't want to spoil what they are because you haven't seen Come and See yet, and I think you will really enjoy that film, so I don't want to really spoil anything. But sure. I'll just say the montage scene has a parallel in Come and See, and the, the theater burning down scene also has a parallel. And I think they're both done so incredibly better in Come and See that there's almost no, there's no competition.
1: Like, I think, I, I mean... I like the film conceptually, like uh, like the idea of this film. Like I like the idea of like, well, because the, the same reason I like the idea of like walking distance. It's like, you know, someone basically walking through their memories, right?
0: Yeah. But I think that the, this film weighs so heavily on the kids stuff and that's, that's most of what is in the theatrical cut from what I understand. The, mm-hmm. the stuff that got excised for the theatrical cut is a lot of the adult stuff, okay, uh, which I found more interesting, but. The kid stuff is so precious and so like oh isn't film magical? I'm like yeah, film's magical and all that like that bullshit. But I don't it, know, I like it, I kind of like that bullshit. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't. It doesn't show it in a way that I. It's not close up. Like close up is a film we'll talk about later by Abbas Kiarostami that really shows why film is important and why film means something. And this film doesn't show that to me at all. It feels very facile, or it feels like the kind of film that. If you're the exact kind of person who grew up in this circumstance, you would see yourself in this child, but bes- it feels like masturbation for nostalgia, like nostalgic masturbation.
1: Which is weird because, I mean, there's, ex- there's a character who explicitly says at the end, like, you know, nostalgia, you know, you can shove it where the sun don't shine.
0: Yeah, and the film just doesn't back doesn't up that the, thesis. Heed the
1: call, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, d- I didn't mind the kid stuff. I thought it was... I think I have a higher tolerance for for cute things. I
0: I think you have a higher tolerance for cute kids.
1: Uh, yeah, sure, okay. I mean, I that I mean that's uh, I mean I'll, I'll bear that cross. Sure, I I'll, I'll be the guy on the pod that likes kids. I mean, okay, fuck
0: you. Like, <laughs> I don't hate kids. I just hate kids in movies. Fair enough. Uh, as long unless they're like an anime, I guess. I like I like when kids are in anime. That's fun.
1: I mean, we'll get to that too eventually.
0: Oh, yeah. We have a lot of, I think almost all the anime films we're going to talk about have uh, some kids in them. And I think yep. that in general, the way that you have to portray melodrama through a child actor just isn't as evocative as having an animated child that can actually act properly and that can be voiced by an adult so that sounds like a child. It just, it, it gets the idea without being the truth. And I think in the situation, the truth of the situation is less interesting than the concept that is being buried by that truth.
1: I mean, I'm not. I'm, I'm not like. I mean, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not this film's biggest fan, but I mean, it I was. It was. It was. A, it was a nice way to kill two hours. I thought it was. I thought it was sweet, but like you know, not what I would call remarkable. Yeah, um, I, just,
0: I just found it miserable straight through. But the next film, I actually, I, I think, is supposed to make me more miserable than I felt. But I still kind of enjoyed it. Do you want to talk about Million Dollar Baby? Let's talk. Let's talk about Clint. Let's talk yeah, about. Yeah, sure.
1: Um, this is the first time I saw this. Same thing with Cinema Paradiso. This is uh, that was the first time, and um, I thought it was very good. I quite liked the film,
0: it, and it, it went up significantly in my estimation. I had it at two stars on Letterbox, and I went up to three and a half for it. So,
1: yeah, that's about where I'd park myself. I mean, uh, maybe you could, maybe someone can convince me into like a gentleman's four, but now three and a half sounds about right. Uh, Clint Eastwood is a hell of a director, isn't he?
0: Oh, he sure is. Like, we're going to talk about one of his films on the next episode, and i don't think this is one of his best films but there's no doubting the fact that he's made a lot of good to great films and a couple stickers uh yeah i mean i mean no one bats a thousand but uh, man, and almost all films with let's say problematic relations to race and gender and things like that yeah and uh america specifically it's Clint Eastwood has always been one of those directors who he's always on the border of saying something I really dislike, but he very rarely crosses over to that. I think the times that he does, for example, American Sniper, I'm very much on the anti-American sniper camp in that yeah. I think it does glorify um, Christopher Kyle. Okay. And the strange thing is that he he's also the guy who made Letters from Iwo Jima, which is a film explicitly about like the toll that the war took on the Japanese and humanizes Japanese uh, Japanese soldiers during World War II in a way that I can't think of any other American film that does that.
1: Yeah, Clint's really hard to pin down in that respect. Yes. Um, This one looks amazing. It has just the way he uses just these blocks of like dark colors, not always black, but just these blocks of dark color, like, like you don't see anyone in the stands ever. You see the first couple rows, but you never see anyone beyond that. You never... Everyone's always cast in shadow. It's 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 very very ex- expressionistic and it's it's fucking gorgeous. People are acting their ass off. Hillary Swank won best actress for this, Morgan Freeman won uh, best supporting actor for this. Uh, even though I feel Morgan Freeman was kind of cruising in this.
0: Yeah, it doesn't feel like his his hardest job, let's say.
1: Um and I was like really into Hillary, Hillary Swank's performance. Like, oh yeah, I could I, I could dig this. And then the third act happens, like, ah, that's why she won the Oscar.
0: Which is unfortunate, because I think that's the worst part of the film.
1: That is by far the worst part of the film.
0: Yeah. For those who haven't seen it, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about spoilers on this podcast, so just oh yeah, do it. Um, Hillary Swank gets uh, paralyzed. She becomes paraplegic after a boxing accident slash like, malicious act on her opponent's part. Yep. And uh, she basically just wants Clint to kill her.
1: Yeah, mercy kill.
0: Yeah, and that's, like, that's the whole plot for the end of the movie, basically. Nothing else really happens. I mean, her family comes in for a little bit, and they're trying to, like, con her out of some money, and she gets to have the good speech where she tells her family to go fuck themselves, which uh, was satisfying just because they were pieces of shit, Right. but not because it actually means anything in the grand scheme of the film, I think. I think it actually, it hurts the film's point.
1: Yeah, this is a Paul Haggis uh, script, and, um... uh, so the, uh, Mr. Crash if you don't know. Um not not the good one, the bad one.
0: Yes, the, the bad crash. The
1: bad crash. The uh, the uh, best picture winning crash. But yet Hillary Swank gets confined to a fucking gets confined to a fucking wheelchair and gets bed sores that you can fit cricket balls in just so Clint
0: Eastwood can have a fucking crisis about it. Also even though she's she's in like an incredibly nice care facility like oh, yeah. like you don't really Obviously, like you can get bed sores if you stay in like a, one place for a long time. But the whole point of being in that care facility is that is they that move you, you and don't. they turn you and they change. Like they do enough so that you aren't getting these. Like they look almost gangrenous. Like bed sores. That's yeah, fucking they, strange. It's
1: it's 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 poor screenwriting, is what and, it is. And
0: we should say there was a big outcry when this movie released that I think is very warranted. In that basically the film portrays. Becoming paraplegic as the worst thing that could ever happen to a person, and they would immediately want to be dead and they can no longer have a happy life, which is a really shitty thing to say about any disability because there's plenty of paraplegic people who live wonderful lives. Like Stephen Hawking lived for so many years after he basically couldn't move his body. Obviously, that was a different disease that wasn't like becoming paralyzed in the same way, but the point is that by portraying being paraplegic as a death sentence effectively, It really shits on the ability of people in those positions to have hope and to actually realize that there are positive things that can happen from there.
1: I think I figured out another reason why they're like, and something that might have massaged the outcry. Would Would it be Jay Baruchel? Well, Jay Baruchel probably would have contributed to that, yes. But what else? But what else? I just looked up, I just ran the numbers, and it turns out that this movie came out Two months after Christopher Reeve died, ooh,
0: not also not a great way to go. That's not a good look. No, it's a terrible look. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think. I think in some situation, a lot of situations, Clint Eastwood is your. We talked about racist grandmas in a previous episode. He's your uh-huh. racist uncle, who's not like on purpose racist or on purpose like, um, ableist. He just doesn't understand what the implications of what he's saying are and he so wants to get his his metaphor which he has said it's a metaphor about the american dream blah blah blah, jerk off motion but (laughs) uh like can you make
1: can you make a movie about the death of the american dream and not be like a giant J O motion (laughs)
0: probably not um Um, people have certainly tried yeah but uh, there's with that said that third act i think is very weak there's a lot of things to like about this movie like you talked about the acting i think is pretty much across the board besides jay baruchel wonderful uh, Jay Parrish, what the fuck are you doing? Boy? Yeah, and also there's that you could have cut his character and not really had any difference. No, I so think it, like it's, Michael.
1: Michael, uh, fuck, what's his name? Anthony Mackie. Anthony Mackey. Yes. Anthony Mackey could have beat the shit out of somebody else.
0: Yeah, it doesn't really matter like what's happening there. He could have beat and the
1: shit out of Michael Pena.
0: He was right there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> and who doesn't love watching Michael Pena get the shit beat out of him? Uh, I'm like, kidding. I like Michael Pena. I just Michael I, Pena is one I of the, the working there. dudes out there yeah but he doesn't need to be in the film and there's a lot of things in this film that are so obviously leftovers from the short story that it's based on uh that don't actually work in context also i just want to say i think that the the fight choreography and the fight shooting is bad
1: it's not great
0: yeah uh and we'll watch um uh, there's a bunch of other boxing movies on this list but even a movie that i wasn't huge on um Wilderness that I just watched this year for the Fantastic Fest coverage, which is a Japanese film that's like four hours long or something oh yeah, like that. Oh yeah, that thing. Yeah, sure. Yeah, even that, which is the film I didn't love, the boxing choreography is so much better and feels so more impactful and real. Whereas this one, it all feels, it's so quick and nothing is actually like extended or long. It just is like in and out, almost like he didn't want to shoot it.
1: I mean, Clint kind of does work like that. I mean, dude, dude has like, you know, two takes of a scene and there it is. I mean, that, that probably explains his bad movies, too.
0: Yeah, certainly. So
1: what, but, uh, how are we doing for time on this pairing?
0: We still have, I think, f- five minutes left to talk about Million Dollar Baby.
1: Holy moly. Uh, yeah, I, I, I certainly hope we didn't give uh, Cinema Paradiso short thrift in terms of time.
0: No, no, no. We we took all ten minutes for Cinema Paradiso.
1: Uh-huh. I didn't know Clint Eastwood s- actually
0: scored this film. as Did he? Yeah, apparently interesting i i had no idea i i can't remember a single note from the score but i'm sure it was fine because i didn't have a problem with it
1: yeah it was probably perfectly yeah yeah i guess it did its job i guess it worked um i'm kind of like scraping the barrel of things to talk about this movie we've covered like the we've covered like the main things
0: which is a problem because it's the one that's going to move on
1: yes i i agree
0: we should just let's get that out of the way like uh Cinema Paradiso, I hated it. You thought it was fine, but I think we both agree that Million Dollar Baby is a better film. One thing that I'm I'm kind of interested in talking about is why do you think this won Best Picture?
1: What was it up again?
0: Um, that was 2004.
1: So let's see. 77th Academy Awards. Uh, it won Best Picture against The Aviator, Finding Neverland, Ray, and Sideways. So there's your fucking answer.
0: Man, there's like nothing. I mean, their Sideways is fine. But sideways like, the is rest, fine. The sideways rest is of those fine. Are, yeah, not wonderful films like and the only and the, other the aviators also fine
1: i mean the only one the only one i've seen the only other
0: ones that i've seen was ray which is fine it's okay yeah. ray's all right so that i
1: think that explains it i think it was just you know
0: you know what finding neverland's also all right it was a year of all right movies in that best picture
1: i mean and it and ain't, ain't, ain't that always the case I, isn't I'm that just, the whole point of like our like isn't the oscars and the imdb top 250 isn't that the whole gimmick of our show
0: I mean, hey, 2007 had both uh, No Country and There Will Be Blood in the same Best Picture category, so occasionally they'll get it right.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I think it's fair. I mean, we should definitely use OK as a baseline at the very fucking least for, like, when we, like, reward something.
0: Are you saying that we shouldn't reward bad movies? I
1: think it's bad I don't think it's best practice to reward shitty movies. And you can quote me on that.
0: That's a controversial position, but um <laughs> I'm I'm willing to agree with you on this one.
1: The year after um the year after Million Dollar Baby One was the crash year. God. This basically enabled this movie enabled Paul Haggis to do crash, basically.
0: Yeah. Although I do want to say one thing one nice thing about Paul Haggis, which is that uh, his anti-Scientology work is actually pretty good.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he got he got out and he's doing he's doing some great work. But he, d-
0: he just makes bad movies, which is fine. A lot of I've never made a good movie either, so you, you and me, wanna... Paul Haggis, we're the same, basically.
1: <laughs> you want to know what Crash beat for Best Picture? Uh sure. Brokeback Mountain, Capote, Good Night and Good Luck in Munich.
0: Yeah, that's that's a slightly stronger group of nominees than the previous year.
1: Yeah, and the wrong movie won. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, so uh that's those two matchups done. So it yeah. looks like next uh next a hundred episodes later or whatever, Bra- Braveheart's going to be going up against a uh, Million Dollar Baby.
1: Oh, that's going to be a hell of a matchup. Mel and Clint. How do we wrap this up?
0: <laughs> uh, we have to talk about the next matchup, then we have to oh, talk about yeah. um, social media, and then we do the catchphrase.
1: <laughs> uh, our catchphrase. All right, so that's that for this week. And uh, next week, or next time, because this is my weekly show, uh, we're going to be covering the next the next group of four movies, so the next two matchups, which are Unforgiven, so we're going to contend with Clint again, versus The Bridge on the River Kwai by David Lean, and uh, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring by Peter Jackson, and Annie Hall by Woody Allen.
0: It's, I think, I'm going to be honest, I think this was a week's slate of movies we had today. I think next week's is a lot more interesting. I think next week's is a lot more interesting. I think I agree with you. Hopefully this episode wasn't too bad, though. I, I always hope that, though. That's fingers crossed every episode. I think that our natural charisma
1: and deep knowledge of the cinematic arts will see us clear to fortune, fame, and uh, podcasting glory.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because a deep knowledge of film did so much for Filmstruck. Uh, R.I.P. Filmstruck. Rest in peace. Gunned down in its prime. Like, literally only two years old. Fucking ridiculous.
1: You know what else died when it was two, right? The Dissolve.
0: God, like, everything, everything good about film dies when it's two, I guess
1: dies when it's two uh so on that very depressing
0: note for the future <laughs> of cinephilia um uh, where can you find <laughs> us on the web
1: oh man everywhere just um the, we, we we are we are the specter that haunts the internet um but more specifically you can find us on twitter at middlebrow pod uh you can find us individually on twitter uh, i'm at Derek underscore g
0: i'm at space jam fan
1: and if you want to drop us a line. Uh, because you are Team Cinema Paradiso and you want to give Michelle what for, and th- I'm not including myself in this because I thought it was okay, uh, you can send an email to us at middlebrowmadness at gmail.com. Is that correct?
0: Um, That is correct, middlebrowmadness at gmail.com. I Sweet. do want to shout out my dad emailed us the other day and oh said uh, it was really good. So good job.
1: Uh, th- 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 thanks, Papa Arf.
0: <laughs> um, so until next time, I've been Michelle Arf.
1: I've been Derek God, I, uh Was it Have Movies Be
0: Jolly? That's the one. Sweet. Good night, everybody.
1: Good night.